I tell you a story today that, strangely enough, is rarely ever told. This is the story of a woman who, during her life, was surrounded by some of history's most famous people, and yet she herself was of extremely humble origins. And her own name is hardly ever mentioned except in kind of a passing reference as we're talking about her more famous relatives. But today, we change all of that, all on the way to answering the question, who was Helena? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. This may very well be the most powerful and influential Christian woman of all time outside of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And to be perfectly honest, though Mary is venerated for her role as the mother of Jesus, there's no evidence that Mary took leadership role, nor that she tried to shape the church of her time. Helena, on the other hand, rose from absolute obscurity to become the most powerful and influential woman, well, maybe in the history of Christianity. And still, you've probably never heard of her until now. Here's part of what I find so interesting about telling the story of Helena. When I was younger, much younger, there was a radio show hosted by a guy named Paul Harvey. If you're of a particular age, you will remember that name well. And he did a segment of that show called The Rest of the Story, in which he revealed little-known details about history and often people. Normally, they were people you had heard of, but you didn't know this part of their story. Almost always, he would tell the story but keep the famous person's identity a secret until the very end when he made the big reveal. And he ended these segments with the line, And now you know the rest of the story. And now you know the rest of the story. Yep, that's him. I tell you about this because normally with someone as influential as Helena, I would need to withhold her name until the very end. You know, to build up suspense for the moment of the big reveal. But this time, well, the vast majority of those listening to this podcast will maybe feel, eh, I have a vague sense that I've heard of her before, but not be able to place her. So let's jump into her life. We actually know very little about her early life, her early years for certain. She was born roughly about 220 years after the death of Christ. It's generally agreed that she was Greek and born in what we would call Turkey today. In the days of her youth, when she was a young woman, it's believed that she was a stabularia. Unfortunately, most of what I could find about this word, stabularia, is associated with her. So, in her case, what is conjectured, if it is even accurate, is that the word means one of two things. Either she was a prostitute or a server in a lower echelon tavern. Whatever the accuracy or the meaning, we can almost certainly assume that she did not come from any form of aristocracy because... Well, because there's no record of her family, and if they'd been of noble birth and given her later historical importance, then that information probably would have survived. It's not clear where she met her husband, but the story is kind of romantic. When they met, he was a Roman military officer, and as it turned out, they were, upon their meeting, both wearing the same bracelet. 
her husband-to-be took this as a sign from God that they were destined to be together. Now, she and her husband had a son. And before I tell you the name of the boy, because he will place all of this in terms of history for you, I should say that there is some debate as to whether or not she and her husband were married. There's some belief that they were not because her husband was of noble birth and she was not. And many historians say that alone would have prevented the two of them from actually getting married. There was a law against Roman nobility marrying people of common background, and she was of a common background. So she was probably his common law wife, meaning that she would have been recognized in society as his wife, but not recognized technically under Roman law as being his wife. Her husband would go on to become emperor of Rome, but unfortunately not with her by his side. Her husband was Constantius, and at some point, it was clear that he had, before becoming emperor, he had real upward potential. So, the story goes, he either divorced or dismissed his wife, Helena, so he could marry someone more fitting to his station. So much for the bracelets being a sign from God, huh? The good news was that Helena was not turned out into the cold, so to speak. She was sent with her son to live in the court of Diocletian. Dad, stop toying with us. Who was the son? Okay, sorry about that. About the son. Well, although he's not the focus of the story, we're going to have to talk about him a bit. The son wound up being the most influential and famous person we will mention in this story. Her son was Constantine. So Helena took her son and raised him as part of the court of Diocletian. What I think historians would agree is that this period of time, they're being sent away and then having to go live in a royal court of another kind of competing emperor led to a profound closeness between Helena and Constantine. Throughout his adult life, he held her in great reverence, which, as we will soon see, was not true for him of all of his family members. It was a strange arrangement. Diocletian and Helena's ex-husband now ruled as kind of co-emperors of the two parts of the empire. Technically, they were not rivals, but co-emperors. But in reality, there was deep mistrust. Constantine was raised in the court with an impressive education, better than he probably would have had had he stayed with his father, who was a military officer and always on the move. But it helps to remember that he was simultaneously an honored guest and also a prisoner-slash-pawn in the court of Diocletian. Eventually, Diocletian was replaced by Galerius, and the world became a much more dangerous place for mother and child. When Galerius ascended to power, it was a surprise to many who thought maybe Constantine himself was going to be chosen for this position. Constantine quickly realized that he needed to get out of town. He slipped out in the dark of night to join his father on his father's latest military campaign. Now, not terribly long after Constantine's joining his father, his father died and the legion that his father had been leading proclaimed Constantine successor to his father. He was now Caesar. Since this isn't Constantine's story, although it feels like it's turning into his story, I will say that Constantine eventually united the kingdom under his rule, and in 325, Helena, his mother, was given the title Augusta by her son, the title meaning empress. 
Now, in 325, Constantine had his son executed for being guilty of some sort of sexual crime, the nature of which is not entirely clearly explained in the text that I read. Most historians now believe that the accusation was that he was guilty of incest with his stepmother. Constantine had been married to a woman before, so currently he was married to a woman who had three sons. This son, who he executed, was from the previous marriage. Those same historians also believe that this story, the way it's described, is exceedingly unlikely because the two of them, the stepmother and the oldest son, lived in different cities. More than likely, it is that there was some sort of political intrigue involved. In other words, Constantine saw his own son as some sort of immediate threat to him. It may be that his son had suggested that his father step down and let him rule. Then, there also may have been some sort of accusation made against the son that gave Constantine an excuse to act. Interestingly, the accusation of the crime came from Constantine's own current wife. So shortly after the execution of his son, he had his own wife murdered. The theory was that Helena, his mother, the focus of our story today, even though we've gotten a little sidetracked, was so distraught at the death of her beloved oldest grandson due to the words of Constantine's second wife that Constantine had the wife executed to appease his mother. And this is the guy who's known as Constantine the Great. Notice the title in history isn't Constantine the Great Dad. Generally, it's believed that Constantine became Christian and that his mother followed suit. Although, there is some conjecture that Helena was born Christian and since Constantine was raised by her, he grew up having a favorable and tolerant view of Christianity. I kind of like that version of the story better. I'm not saying it's more likely. I don't have any idea. I'm just saying I like that version better. Somehow it has a little more poetry to it for me. What is known about Helena is that immediately following this traumatic, tragic execution of her grandson, she decided to make a spiritual pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Now, if you've ever traveled to the Holy Land, I have twice, then much of what you experienced there was shaped by Helena. While I was there, I visited the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which is thought to be built upon the site of Jesus' birth. There also wound up being a church built on the site of the Ascension. There is even a church built on and encompassing both the sites of Jesus' crucifixion and burial, all in a single building. All of these sites were identified by Helena on this visit. And it is even said that she found the actual cross of Christ on this visit, and that helped her discern the location of the crucifixion. The story goes that she found three crosses. Each was then touched by someone who was gravely ill, but only one of the crosses caused the person to be healed. So that cross was discerned to be the cross of Christ. And therefore, where it was found was considered the location deemed to be the site of the crucifixion. Let's forget for a moment that wood was expensive and each person being executed did not get a fresh new cross but they were nailed to a cross that had been used multiple times before, and it's unlikely that anyone collected the cross of Christ after his crucifixion, nor would they have been allowed to, and that somehow these pieces of wood probably were used up and discarded or burned or whatever later on. They weren't just somehow saved in a location that was old crosses used for crucifixion. But, but having said all of that, 
The story is more about giving legitimacy to the location chosen for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which houses the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion and his tomb. Remember, all this happened 300 years after the crucifixion, so the point of the story for me is not really about the truth or falsehood of her discoveries. We, in truth, have no idea. I will say this. I have no doubt that she believed she found the actual sites and actual real relics from Jesus' crucifixion. Oh yeah, and she had a bunch of them, such as the piece of Jesus' tunic, as well as a piece of his cross, as well as two thorns from the crown and a nail from the crucifixion and some rope from the crucifixion. It was quite a haul of relics that she brought home with her. What is interesting for me is that the most holy locations in the history of Christendom for almost 2,000 years were all selected by this remarkable woman who in all likelihood you'd never heard of. Now, if you're Catholic, then this remarkable woman is known as St. Helena, and she is the patron saint of new discoveries, which seems fitting, right? But I would also include her as the patron saint of unknown saints. I'm creating that. That's not official. Here's a woman of faith who has a remarkably long-lasting influence on the Christian church, and yet virtually, well, almost nobody outside of the church academics even know her name. She is a reminder of the number of people who have lived and served God faithfully, who have probably shaped the world in ways that we don't realize because their names have been forgotten, and yet, if not remembered by us, are known and celebrated for eternity by the God they loved and served. I'm sure you've heard of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Church of the Nativity in the Holy Land, but you probably hadn't heard about Helena, whose remarkable life and pilgrimage brought about those remarkable places. And now you know the rest of the story. That's all for today. If you have a question for me or a response to this podcast, then send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. My email address is dan at skypilot, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T, dan at skypilot.zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.